all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Welcome one and all to episode 214 of the SLS cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the Theodicy episode of the SLS cast. You know, you're probably asking yourself, what the hell is Theodicy? Well, it turns out it's not a speech impediment version of the odyssey where you're trying to say that no 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 the odyssey is actually a study on the problem of evil yes and in case you ever needed to look that up in the library it turns out that the dewey decimal classification for the odyssey would be two one Four. And with that roundabout knowledge about both the Dewey Decimal Classification and the Odyssey itself, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us once again from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. Actually, it would be more so rainy California. Been getting a lot of rain this week. Apparently, it has I been heard. the wettest season in six years. The wettest winter in six years. So wet, in fact, that you guys lost your sequoia tree. I heard about that. The drive through sequoia tree fell down. Of course, Wasn't maybe that the it wasn't a good idea wah? to... The wah-wah-wah? I'm sorry? The, there's like the, the one-a-wah-wah one? I don't know. There's two. I know you still have one other one. It's a redwood, though. Right. That you can drive through. That one's still alive. Um, but, uh, yeah, the sequoia, unfortunately, they kept widening it. And so as cars got wider, they kept widening the the hole in the bottom of the tree. And then when they realized, holy crap, we can't keep widening this hole um, because then the tree will fall over. It was already too late. And then they wouldn't let anybody drive through it anymore. But you could still walk through it. And the sad part is, is despite knowing how badly that tree was damaged, they were still letting people take pictures the morning of the day it fell. So, yeah. I guess we won't have to worry about that anymore. The hole has been carved out since like the late 1800s. I think it was like 1880-something. I, I forgot what came first. that The carving of that tree or it was the giant redwood tree. But they were both people who did this were competing against each other. One or the other had a Model T drive through theirs for the first time. And so the other one had to do it. And so they had this like friendly competition as to how popular their holes can get. Yes. Uh, it, okay, so or this be. was the pioneer. Yes, yeah, so the, strictly speaking, this was the pioneer tunnel tree and it was a 1000 year old 1000 plus year old sequoia tree um and it stood for over 130 years since a tunnel was drilled through its base in the late 1800s you couldn't expect that thing to last forever not when you cut a goddamn hole in the bottom of it i know i'm sure the first like 10 years it was like oh wow this is amazing this is pretty cool but even like i think after that 10 year mark i'd be thinking how long is this really going to last? Surely it doesn't have like the root support there. And so with California going through such crazy lengths of no rain, and all of a sudden we get all this water and flooding. And even in Sonoma, in the wine country, they were saying that all these vineyards got flooded. And all you can see is the tippy tips of the vines kind of poking out. So 
Who knows? We might be actually uh-huh. getting some really good Pinot Noir next season. <laughs> or, or worst of all, uh, you know, we're going to have the, it's going to go from 2016 wines to just 2018 wines. And yeah. Not, you know, nothing else. So. The year of no wine. It's going to be like the 1920s prohibition of wines in Southern California or Northern California. Yeah. But, but how was your week? You sound much better. You it, you do sound much better. Thank you. Uh, the drugs help. Ooh, drugs. Drugs are always good. Drugs. Two exciting things happened. The first one being I, I decided to go get gasoline like most Americans do. When I was in Houston, I went to a handful of breweries, and I made it a point at each one of the breweries I got a couple T-shirts. And so I went to Eighth Wonder, got a couple Eighth Wonder T-shirts, went to Carbach, got my Hopadillo T-shirt, And then we went to Spindle Tap Brewery, and the theme of the Spindle Tap Brewery is like the oil boom in Houston, you know? And so they had the uh, Houston Oiler Spindle Top, or the Houston Oiler logo, I forget what that that is, but they had a t-shirt with that logo on it, and it was, they were playing around with the whole Houston Oilers theme, so some of it was like Houston Oilers uh, colors, and so I got this long sleeve t-shirt Houston Oiler Blue, and on the back it had their big spindle tap logo on it, and that was going to be the first shirt I wore on Casual Friday at work. It's still nice. It's not completely a brewery shirt. There's a little bit of style to it, yet old mannish. So you kind of get a pass when you're working in finance wearing something like that. So I thought, oh, I'm going to get gasoline. And so I went to a pull into the neighborhood gasoline station. I get out of the car. I put in my credit card. I reach down to take the little gas gun. I'm calling it the wrong thing. I know it's called something. The nozzle. Right? So I put the money in it. I I push the grade of gas I wanted. I'm taking the nozzle out. All of a sudden, unleaded gasoline just goes everywhere. All over the ground. All over my brand new shoes. And all over my Spindle Tap Brewery long sleeve shirt. After wasting... worth of gasoline, I managed to get that nozzle so far into my car to where it handled the situation. Either the cold weather that we've been experiencing here mixed with the wet made the nozzle switch stick, or some kid came by with sticky glue and made the nozzle stick. This is a very roundabout way of saying that it just sucked. I mean, I smell like gasoline going to work. I I couldn't tell you how many ironic things I, I, I heard from people saying, commenting on how I was smelling like gasoline, yet I was wearing an oil-related t-shirt. They thought it was a scented shirt that I got from Houston, Texas. Uh, this was after they asked me how my ranch was and how my oil derrick in the backyard was doing, making sure I was making lots and lots of cashola from that said oil derrick. And yeah, so have you have you ever had gasoline spilt on you and you had to wear it all day long? No, no I've had... I've had a you know the occasional droplet or two hit the shoes or something like that, but um, no. the The only thing I can, <laughs> uh, I, I the only story to make you feel better, to make you feel better. I'm, I I I I do not tell this story in uh, the spirit of one upsmanship, but in the spirit of I was an idiot. Okay, so um, when I first moved to Houston. 
uh, from Seattle, I had just gotten on. I was with the company that when I was doing the work with Cirque du Soleil and everything. And um, in between the legs of the Cirque stuff, we were in town. We we're doing a gig. Um, and it was the very first gig I had officially through the company and everything. I'm with my good friend, Mike. And um, he and I are finished up with the gig. We've uh, broken it down. We're taken off. And uh, we we lived in the same apartment complex. So I had carpooled with him that day. And he uh, was like, hey, I'm, uh, I need to get some gas. And so... You know, I'm going to pull over here. He's like, all right, cool, whatever, dude. And so he gets out and puts the nozzle in the car and puts the pump on and goes inside. And I had brought a book with me. I was really into the Clive Cussler books back then. And so I pulled out my Clive Cussler book. I'm sitting there uh, smoking my cigarette. The windows rolled down, you know. Um, and then I finish my cigarette and leave the window rolled down. And put the cigarette out in the ashtray because, you know, it's a gas station. So you can't just flick the cigarette around. You know, you don't want to be stupid. And um, I'm just reading my book. And I don't hear this fountain noise. Like, literally, like a fountain, you know. Just like a, like a you know, kind of a high-pressure water fountain noise. And I'm just riding. You know, Mike was inside buying some cigarettes and whatever, paying for the gas. And all of a sudden he comes out and he's like, Matt, dude! And I'm like, What? And that fountain noise was the failure of the lever on the on the nozzle to do its little kickback thing when when it when it backflows, <laughs> and so the, the gas is literally just shooting <laughs> shooting out of the tank, and, and I had no idea how long it had been doing that. So he paid like uh, you know, and this is two thousand and two, I want to say, um, so. He paid like $45 to fill up a Mustang. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, that is, uh, you know, that, that's, that's what, that's my experience with the gas not working the right way. It sucks. <laughs> it does. Yeah. And I, I tell you what, it's not pleasant when you actually get it all over yourself either, because I had to spend 10 hours with gasoline all in my socks, all in my shoes, and just feeling it sludge in between my toes throughout the day. I just, you know, I gotta be honest. I I, I feel like you should have been able to take uh, some PT time or just a couple hours and be like, oh, you know, I'm sorry, I'm gonna be late today. Yeah, and go home and change your damn clothes. I don't understand. I... I why was this not a viable option for you, sir? Let's 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 dig into the meat of this. I you know I had a lot of stuff to do at work in the morning. Well, you know, and, and I kind of thought, well, maybe if I sprayed a little Lysol on it, it wouldn't be that bad. <laughs> nope. Spray Lysol on it, and guess what it smells like? Oil gas and, and Lysol. Lysol. <laughs> yeah, gas and Lysol. <laughs> It wasn't like the the fresh scent Lysol either. It was just like the the yellow bottle, the regular original scent, same scent from the nineteen mm. thirties. Oh yeah, the good stuff. Yeah, when you spray uh. it, people know it's goddamn Lysol. Okay, so as seemingly usual, the moths they fly out of the sack. So um, we have no email to speak of, or 
uh, Twitter followers to mention. But if you would like to do either one of those things, please feel free to email us. Um, send an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can also follow us on Twitter at the slscast if you choose to do so. So without further ado, Tim, would you like to go ahead and jump into the news? Yes, please. All right, folks, here we go. It's the news. <laughs> up from me we're gonna be a little serious here let's get serious from cnn.com by way of sandra gonzalez and cnn meryl streep attacks trump and golden globes acceptance speech now that is the title of the article because i am referencing this article that we're going to be discussing this isn't going to be a political discussion by any stretch of the imagination this is just kind of to recap everything um it just so that we can have our discussion about it so fear not fear not just bear with me here for a minute uh let's see here so meryl streep was honored at the golden globes for a lifetime of notable work and she took the opportunity to make a sustained attack on u.s president-elect donald trump in a nearly six-minute address while accepting the cecil b demille award the actress denounced trump's campaign rhetoric and criticized him for mocking a disabled reporter as the audience of hollywood stars and executives sat in silence uh, Streep said, quote, there was one performance this year that stunned me. It sank in its hooks in my heart, not because it was good. There was nothing good about it, but because it was effective and did its job. I'm going to end the quote there. So, and she goes in, you know, goes into discussing at length, um, and, and not mentioning him by name, but goes into talking about what Trump did and said about this reporter. Um, and so following that, of course, in an interview with the New York Times Monday morning, Trump said he was, quote, not surprised, end quote, by the criticism from, quote, liberal movie people, end quote, pointing out that Streep was a supporter of his defeated rival, Hillary Clinton. Um, and there is more to this article. This is probably about the first start of the article, but this is basically just to kind of give you the gist of what's going on. Now, I watched the entire speech, um, and... I must say that it was all about, um, you know, unity by the Hollywood foreign press. It was unity of, you know, uh, people not outright using their celebrity um, in, in to, to fight for what they believe in, but but making sure that um, that Hollywood takes takes note of its art and how Hollywood and its art and the artists as in the actors and actresses producers directors crew um you know can purport to help do good in in their view or at least in Meryl Streep's personal view to affect change um now here's so if you would like to read more and i encourage you to do so please again cnn.com uh by uh, by way of sandra gonzalez meryl streep attacks trump and golden globes acceptance speech now my thing is and this is where i've always stood on this and i don't know that it's necessarily my position has really evolved much so to speak uh because in this specific context the golden globes is basically this is where the um, this is really where kind of the press itself kind of says this is who we think should win, whereas um, the, the SAG Awards are where the actors themselves say, hey, we think you should win. Um, and then, of course, the Oscars, of course, is the, the own in Oscars committee. So 
the Golden Globes, even with its being press and obviously foreign press, um, I don't necessarily think that the timing of the speech in this particular instance, because let's face it, she was speaking to her people. If nothing else, for the most part, you could say she was even preaching to the choir. Um, but the thing is, is that where I come across off of it is that the problem isn't people using their celebrity to, or, or taking time out of something that is an achievement and honor where they have the time and they have the platform to say what they want to say and what they feel the need to say. I think where I've come to my conclusion is I still maintain that just because you're a celebrity doesn't mean you are properly informed. Now, and this is for anything, not just this specific example. And therefore, I think the problem is celebrity, not a celebrity or the celebrities. It's celebrity. It's fame and how people automatically assume that just because you're famous, somehow what you have to say is more important. And I think that's really the root of the problem. And I don't know necessarily that there is a way to address that or fix it, but I don't necessarily think that you can hate on someone um, or regardless of whether or not you agree or disagree with them. But I, I really don't think you can lampoon or lambast the opportunity that they took in a forum where the people who are there are generally receptive to it um, for doing what comes natural. So I don't know, Tim, we're, we're, you know, am I making any sense here? Does it, you know, because like I said, I'm totally not trying to make this political. I think this is more about the, the, um, the speech itself, not the content of the speech, but the fact that celebrities in general tend to make stands like Marlon Brando when, uh, when he famously did not accept the, uh, speech for, uh, or when he famously sent that, the, the Native American woman to go up and, and accept the best Oscar and, you know, make her little protest speech. And, uh, or even like last year with Leonardo DiCaprio when he discussed climate change and indigenous peoples. You know, all those kinds of things. You know, any example that you want to choose. I think the problem becomes fame, not... I don't know. What do you think, sir? Well, I mean, it is politics, though. I mean, it's Hollywood politics, entertainment politics. Stuff like this has been going on for so many years. They're going to make their point of views present. Celebrities are at award ceremonies, very much like how when Chris Rock hosted the Academy Awards, the Oscars last year, mm -hmm. uh, with the whole sure. Black Lives Matter, and he brought up the whole issue of race in uh, movies and TV. I know that's on a different scale or a different spectrum as uh, Donald Trump and American politics, mainly because race in movies and actually in the whole entertainment industry that fits in that venue, in that avenue more for the Academy Awards. With that, even how Chris Rock handled it, even how, like what Meryl Streep said, or even how, even when Jon Stewart hosted the Oscars many years ago, it was very political anti-George W. Bush. There's a time and a place for it, and I, I, that's what I kind of got from my grandfather growing up. He always just said that he loved watching... I think it was Elvis Presley when he was interviewed by Johnny Carson or somebody... And they started asking about politics. And his response was great. 
Who wants to hear me, a multi-millionaire performer, singer, talk about politics? Who cares about what I have to say? You never really ever heard Elvis Presley actually talk about politics on a talk show. It was all about entertainment. And I understand due to the times and due to everything that's happening with race in movies, with the presidential election, we also have to have that escapism. And I'm not saying that when a movie wins the Academy Award or when we are praising a film that has these great social issues or that tackle these great social issues, I'm not saying that they have to be limited and they have to be a part of the mold of escapism. I think, if anything, if the whole mold of an award show is supposed to be fun escapism entertainment but then you do have those small moments of eye-opening speech it would make it even more prevalent or even more impactful and i think that's what i would prefer it doesn't matter if one person goes up and accepts an award or a couple people go up and accept an award and they share their point of view but i think on top of it they still won an award for a role that they were in that a lot of us did go and see. And at the same time, they do need to acknowledge that. And that's just how I feel. I don't like it when an entire award show is based around acknowledging a controversy of some kind, even when they're joking about it. It just gets a little too old. We don't need those same jokes. We hear it all the time on The Tonight Show or on all these other comedy, late-night comedy outlets. So, I don't know. Did that make sense at all? So, basically, you're you're more for um, the proper time and a place, but at the same time, an individual choosing to make a stand about something is one thing, instead of the entire program revolving around whatever the issue might be. Yeah, that's what I was saying about, like, when Chris Rock hosted the, the Oscars. Sure. His jokes, a lot of them were geared towards that. What was so fun about Billy Crystal hosting the Academy Awards or Whoopi Goldberg, or Steve Martin, though Whoopi Goldberg did have that political sass, it was still, they were still having fun. It was all about celebrating those movies. And politics, they might get some political jabs in there, but it was still celebrating the movies. And that's what I want to see when I'm dedicating three, four hours watching these goddamn things. And I agree. And that's what, and again, I I think um, that's, a lot of it is where I think that's where if celebrities uh, want to have charity organizations or if they want to uh, take part in any kind of organization and any political affiliation, then go do those things, be active, put your name, put your brand behind that stuff. But for me, when you're at award ceremonies and stuff like that, um, make it about what you do. Don't take away from that by doing other things so cool well okay see we did we did it yes all right (laughs) it's a very it's another successful discussion on a very touchy subject or could be a very touchy subject it very well could have been but i think we did well kudos to us tim (laughs) kudos to us all right so go ahead sir what do you got for us all right so my first two pieces of news first being from blackflag.jalope Nick.com, blackflag.jlopnik.com. 
Cars.com. Director fined for ripping off Disney's Cars still says he's never seen Cars. This is written by Alanis King, and this actually came out on the first of uh, this month, so the first of the year. It says this, In ruling that Chinese film The Autobots was an illegal copy of Disney and Pixar Animation's Cars, a Shanghai court fined the movie's producing and distributing companies $190,000 and ordered them to cease the copyright infringement. But even now, the Autobots director continues to say he's never seen Cars. Since its release in July 2015, Spokesmen from the movie have denied ripping off cars. According to Variety, the fine that the court issued to Chinese producer Bloom TV and distributor G-Point is nearly a fourth of the $863,000 that the movie grossed. Disney filed the copyright lawsuit in the Shanghai Pudong New Areas People's Court in July 2016, according to Variety, and the court announced on Thursday that it ruled producers of the Autobots illegally used Disney's characters and posters. Variety reports that the court also said that the movie's title is similar to Cars and constitutes unfair competition. Despite the New York Times reporting that many Chinese said they'd seen the film before upon the Autobots release, the film's director, Zhu Jinarong, said he, quote, hadn't anticipated, in quote, the Chinese audience having such a fixed attachment on Disney's characters. Zhu Hu also said the Autobots characters were all copyrighted and legal in China upon its release, according to the New York Times. Zuho's or Zuhu's lawyers argued during the case that all the characters had been independently developed, and Variety reports that Zuho will launch an appeal to the ruling. And believe it or not, Variety also reports that Zuho said he had plans for a sequel to the movie before losing the court case. All he needed to do was raise the funds to produce it. End all quotes there. That was pretty much uh, the whole article, but there are some interesting replies and comments to it. Again, director fine for ripping off Disney's Cars still says he's never seen Cars from blackflag.jalopnik.com. Matt, what do you think about this? Uh, You can go online and actually find the poster for the Autobots, and it looks exactly like the poster for Cars 2. (laughs) <laughs> I think it's pretty stupid. <laughs> I think if I, I think if even in China, a, a country notorious for its um, uh, frivolous uh, lack of enforcement of anything copyrightable, um, and you lose there, son, you're delusional. I don't care. Uh, you know, you can claim anything you want, but you're lying or delusional. Maybe you believe that you've never seen it for some reason. Maybe somehow you have convinced yourself that you have never seen it, but you're wrong. Well, you know, I think since the movie grossed only $163,000, we might have to watch it. <laughs> or you know what? I have an idea. Your 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 girls, maybe maybe your two youngest, say you're putting on the new Cars movie and see if they catch on. <laughs> Can they understand Chinese? No, I'm afraid they don't. Oh, darn. So my news is going to stay within the realm of 
law and franchises, this one pertaining to Star Trek and the Star Trek fan film Axanar via TheVerge.com, Star Trek fan film isn't protected by fair use. Rules U.S. Judge. This is written by Andrew Liptak and was published on January 5th, and it says this... A U.S. District Court judge has sided with Paramount and CBS in a copyright lawsuit involving the Star Trek fan film Axanar, which had raised over a million dollars via crowdfunding. The filmmakers had argued that Paramount's lawsuit was premature because the film hadn't been created yet, and that they could proceed because Axanar fell under fair use. The court rejected both claims, but did allow the case to proceed with a jury to determine whether or not the project was substantially similar to the original Star Trek series. Axnar was developed as a prequel to the original Star Trek series, telling the story of Garth of Izar in his fight against the Klingon Empire during the Four Years' War. In 2014, Axanar Productions crowdfunded and released Prelude to Axanar, a 20-minute documentary-style short film that serves as a prequel to the longer film. In 2015, Axanar Productions launched a pair of funding campaigns to film a, quote, fully professional, independent Star Trek film, end quote, which would star Richard Hatch of Battlestar Galactica, Tony Todd of The Flash, 24 and The Rock, Kate Vernon from Battlestar Galactica, and others. The film's success drew a lawsuit in December 2015 from Paramount, which argued that the film infringed on the, quote, innumerable copyrighted elements of Star Trek, including its settings, characters, species, and themes, end quote. Then things got complicated. During the promotional lead-up to Star Trek Beyond, J.J. Abrams announced that he and Justin Lin had pushed the studio to drop the lawsuit and noted that the lawsuit was, quote, going away, end quote. And as we all know, that did not happen. In fact, I'm going off script here. But in fact, uh, CBS and Paramount decided to go forth with a lawsuit against Axanar Productions. Uh, but do check out this article. Uh, I probably read about half of it. Again, that was Star Trek fan film isn't protected by fair use, rules U.S. judge via The Verge. Matt, I know you are probably not happy to hear about this. <laughs> and you will continue your Star Trek Boycott. protest. Yeah, this is ridiculous. I just, I, I've been reading up on this stuff and behind the scenes and everything. It is a huge blow, but... I think that um, when you're limiting it to one person who's a judge, um, I'm not saying that the judge is incompetent or anything. You really only have to convince one person um, of your of your findings. When you go to a jury trial, now you're getting a group of people who are not law professionals, and I think um, for better or worse, it will be easier to convey the differences and everything. Not to mention. Um, this has seriously, seriously hurt CBS and Paramount. Um, they've already had to push Star Trek Discovery back. Um, people not, and you know, hey, you guys know I'm pissed about it, so whatever. But, um, people in droves are leaving Star Trek over this. They're just like, fuck it, we're done. We're out. Um, 
it's also showing just how archaic these people are, even when they're trying to do something new. It, because they're using this as to, to try and help push CBS All Access, uh, Star Trek Discovery, that is, um, to push original network content for TV shows so that you will pay to watch network TV. Um, and they can't even get it right. So, and, and this negative publicity is doing nothing to help. So they're just, I don't know. I think they have literally gotten so far that their hope is that at this point, the only way out is through. And, you know, I guess they're thinking time heals all wounds. I'm not sure, but it's Marvel versus DC all over again. The love them or hate them, Marvel, the Marvel Universe, television, uh, print, film is just beating DC to death um, in entertainment. And it's the same thing here now. Star Wars, again, is just beating Star Trek to fucking death. And Star Trek literally just had its 50th anniversary in 2016. Um, they got one big thing in August and that was only if you could afford to pay and go to it in Las Vegas. So I, I think at this point people are really ready to just write Star Trek off on the whole and it's sad. It's, it's really kind of sad. So, yeah, it really is. Uh, I mean, I really do hope they bounce back in some way. I enjoyed Star Trek Beyond quite a bit, but I'm with everybody else in saying that the movie could have been better, and it still, even though it 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 uh, distinguished itself enough away from the J.J. Abrams movie, and it felt like more of a classic Star Trek film, it still felt like a corporate-made Star Trek movie, and that makes this whole Axanar situation hurt even more because you still have this big fan base, this dedicated, devoted fan base, and you're just kind of fucking them over. And, like, I understand you want to give them stipulations and limit them as to what they can do with this production, but I've said it before, I I just wonder if they're worried that it might actually be better than what they're going to be putting out at the movie theater Paramount. So, or it could actually even be better than the new Star Trek TV series. And I think that's what truly is the problem. I think they know they have a dud on their hands. And so they are um, desperate to keep Axanar from happening because Axanar already looks better than what they have. And I think that's what it really boils down to. Um, The problem is, is that they're literally alienating everybody, um, the smart the smart money would have been on saying look you guys are clearly making something that will compete directly even though you're not trying to you're making something that is going to completely compete with what we've got going on um you know so we can't let you make this because we need to make a show and we've got money. We've got all the stuff that we've been developing and everything. Um, so instead of doing that, um, why don't we bring you in to help us develop this series? 
Everybody wins. CBS gets CBS doesn't have to worry about the competition. The people who funded Axanar are going to be like, holy crap, you're actually, you know, instead of getting a one-off thing, now they're going to get everybody behind Axanar developing a full TV series. So they're not losing out on what they paid into. Um, and then you get a, you get a show, um, that people will want to watch and people will pay for, but they didn't do that because they're stupid. So (laughs) that's it. That's all you got to say really as a comment to this, they didn't do it. They're just stupid. They're not going to do it. They're dumb. Yes. All right. Well, this here is my last piece of news. Uh, speaking of Star Trek versus Star Wars, or however, uh, it was just a nice segue. From HollywoodReporter.com, by way of Boris Kitt, Star Wars Brain Trust sets meeting to plot Leia's life after Carrie Fisher's death. Carrie Fisher's December 27th death has left a disturbance in the Force. Her iconic Princess Leia is set to appear in the next two Star Wars films, and insiders tell The Hollywood Reporter that at least two key scenes are planned for Episode 8 and 9. A Leia reunion with Skywalker and a confrontation with Kylo Ren. Details of what of where those scenes fit into the movies remain unclear, but insiders say Leia was to have been a bigger part of episode eight. I'm sorry, a bigger part of episode nine than eight. Uh, episode eight director Rian Johnson has finished shooting, but episode nine doesn't have a start date. Both Fourth Awakens and episode eight began production at the beginning of the year, so it is very likely that episode nine will begin shooting in early 2018 for a December 2019 release. And the status of the script, uh, being written by Colin Trevorrow and Derek Connolly, is unknown. Disney won't comment. Now, I'm going to stop there. The rest of the article, um, that was about the first uh, third of the article, actually, um, is discussing whether or not CGI, makeup, should they do it, you know, what are the possible options. So my question out there to you, again, from HollywoodReporter.com by way of Boris Kitt, Star Wars Brain Trust, sets meeting to plot Leia's life after Carrie Fisher's death. Please read. Um, what do you think, Tim? Do you think that they should just creatively write her out? Like, perhaps maybe create another kind of an Alderaan moment, but she's on it? So, right, so now they just blow up the planet that she's on, or or she's in some kind of ship, and they can you know they can work that into whatever is left off in in episode eight, so they can use all the footage, do all that kind of stuff. Or should they try the dear god end of fucking Rogue One bullshit? Oh, and completely create, yeah, digitally create her, recreate yeah. her. Mm-hmm. What do you, what do you, what do you think? I don't know. That's a lot of lines they're going to have to recreate. I, I think I think they should just write her off into the sunset. I'm serious. Well, I, I think I think so too. Or maybe, I mean, because you can't really have her getting called off somewhere. She'll have to come back. Or maybe there you can bring in a blockade, and maybe she's stuck somewhere and she can't come and help out, but she's busy doing other things. And maybe we hear her voice like through uh, a transmission or something. I mean, stuff like that can work as long as they don't do the stupid CGI bullshit and they don't try to keep her on as a substantial character. I mean, she can still, if they don't want to kill her off, they can still have her as a part of the story, but she just has to be off screen. People can't just be coming from one-on-one meetings with her, for example. Maybe 
reuse some unused footage or if you want to do the CGI thing, do it like as a, a grainy hologram where you just yeah, get a sense of Yeah, like the her. Snoke stuff. Yeah, like you can do like something with Snoke like they did where it's, you know, the um, the hologram imaging or whatever, you know, I guess that would be the only way I could think of to do it. But Yeah, and even even with then, like it could start off with that and then she could be on a planet that explodes or something but you don't necessarily have to kill her off i think you can still utilize her in the story but the creative idea or the creative thing what might even help the story to create that suspense is just having her off doing something else and whatever the uh, the main issue or problem that's happening is keeping her away from joining the main group that is the core of the movie Right. I mean, and let's not forget, I we did I we didn't report on this, but I did happen to catch that uh Disney um was paid 50 million dollars because she died. So insurance? Uh, insurance claim. Yes. Oh wow. It was an insurance claim. So because she was set to do all three movies and even though she died after two, apparently it was an all or none kind of a gig and yeah, so Disney's getting 50 million dollars in in insurance. Maybe they'll maybe they'll use that properly. I don't know. So, anyways, but that's my news, sir. So bring us home. Maybe they'll add in another at at t t t t a whatever those things are called. Okay, so I'm going to keep my last piece of news short because of the time. But I did want to mention this. This pertains to the. Razzie Awards, and it's via the filmschoolrejects.com. The worst of the best of the worst five times the Razzies were dead wrong. This is written by Meg Shields. And I'm just going to read you this list. It also leads into the movies that were that have been nominated to receive Razzie Awards this year, which I think is more entertaining than this list once I started kind of going through them. Stanley Kubrick, in 1981, was nominated for a Golden Raspberry Award, the first Golden Raspberry Award, for his direction of The Shining. How about that? That is considered now, even not even early 90s even, and even at that time, one of the best directed uh, nuanced films of all time, The Shining. What else do we got here? Heaven's Gate. That was nominated for Worst Picture, Actor, Screenplay, Musical Score, and Worst Director. It actually won for Worst Director that year. And that that's a shame. I think a lot of people just don't like movies that run 219 minutes. Uh, but it is beautifully shot, if not incredibly flawed. But it is by no way a horrible film. You also have more Coney's score of The Thing from 1983. His score, I, I can see why his score was nominated. It's a little too 80s, a little too cheesy, and it aged poorly. But at the time, it was incredibly effective. Even as a kid watching The Thing, at least the opening, and when you're first introduced to The Thing and the stuff that The Thing does, it, it is incredibly creepy. Um so he was nominated. You also have The Newsies in 1993, nominated for Worst Picture, Supporting Actor, Supporting Actress, Director, and it won for Worst Original Song. Yes, that's become more of a classic nowadays than I think it did when the movie originally came out. I've never seen the movie. Uh, the Blair Witch Project, Worst Picture, it was nominated. Uh, and it won for Worst Actress, which... She deserved it, but the movie is actually pretty good. We can attest to that since we 
watched it and reviewed it this year. What do you think about those? Uh, Do you think that this article is correct, that the Razzie Awards got some of these nominations and winners incorrect, that they are better than what the Razzie Awards is representing? Well, I think if you look into... um... At the time of their nomination, I mean, people were thinking, um, a lot of people were shocked by The Shining because it's so drastically different from the book, and uh, I'm pretty sure Kubrick never even read it. So, um, so, so you have things like that that are going into it when, when these things are happening. It's not necessarily that the films themselves were bad, and I think that's probably why Kubrick was nominated um not necessarily because his direction was poor or he was bad although um he did apparently mistreat Shelley Duvall pretty pretty badly um it was just things like that so the Razzies aren't just about um poor um a poor performance but by their very nature razzing someone uh they're snarky and I think that that's a lot of what goes into that kind of stuff. Not to mention the thing is really rather heavily 80s inspired. So, um, And while Newsies, um, and I think Newsies was just, I don't think Newsies is bad. I think Newsies was just misguided. It's, it's been very successful on Broadway. So there's that, I guess. In the movies in People nominated for the Razzie Award for this year, the 37th Razzie Awards, uh, surprisingly Skip Trace is nowhere on this list. And it pisses me off. <laughs> Worst picture, you have Assassin's Creed, Batman v Superman, Collateral Beauty, The Darkness, Dirty Grandpa, Divergent Series, Allegiant, Fifty Shades of Black, which they point out that it is a rip or it is a spoof of Fifty Shades of Grey, just so nobody gets starts freaking out about Fifty Shades of Grey being on here. Gods of Egypt. Hillary's America, The Secret History of the Democratic Party, Independence Day Resurgence, London Has Fallen, Mother's Day, Suicide Squad, and Zoolander 2. A lot of the directors of those movies, including Boo Amadea of Halloween's Tyler Perry, was nominated as Worst Director, which I don't understand. If he is nominated for Worst Director, why isn't his movie nominated for Worst Picture? Because I kind of think that would go hand in hand, really. Not sure. Yeah, but if you people, if any of you guys are interested in checking it out, do look up the Razzie nominations and let us know if you agree or disagree. Because you notice a you notice a a a, a, a pattern here. A lot of the same movies and the same people are nominated multiple times throughout each category. So, of course, we see a lot of Gods of Egypt and only a couple Ghostbusters. But yeah, that was the worst of the best of the worst. Five times the Razzies were dead wrong via filmschoolrejects.com. Awesome, awesome. All right, well, that brings us to the end of the news. And now to... Discussions with Matt and Tim. This time on Discussions with Matt and Tim, Matt and Tim discuss the 1990 film Postcards from the Edge. And now, Discussions with Matt and Tim. Mm-hmm. 
So, discussions. Let's discuss. Postcards from the Edge. It is a, it, as was already noted, a 1990 American comedy drama film directed by Mike Nichols. Uh, the screenplay was actually by Carrie Fisher and is based on her 1987 semi-autobiographical novel of the same name. Uh, film stars Meryl Streep and Shirley MacLaine in the roles of uh, basically Carrie Fisher and... Um, Oh, good lord. Debbie Help Debbie Reynolds. Tim. Thank you, Debbie Reynolds. Sorry. I'm staring at a picture of Shirley MacLaine and it's <laughs> throwing me off. Um in real life, uh or I guess in the book, uh, just so you know that because again this was a book, um uh Suzanne has to stay with her aunt and uncle. Uh, in the movie, she stays with her mom. And I think this was done because um, there there are a lot of differences between the book and the movie. Um, but I think it was very a very good move for Carrie Fisher to do the screenplay. Because um, she was able to take the themes of the book and apply them to the movie. But give them an additional kind of depth that you wouldn't have gotten from the book. Because of the way that the book is presented. And so... We have uh, Meryl Streep as the recovering drug addict. She's trying to put her life back together. Um, and she ends up having to stay with her mom, who she is desperate, who she was desperate to get away from because she had to live in her mother's shadow, who is also um, an actress of, of note. And so the, the film delves into. Um, her recovery, the people that she runs into, um, how fame works, what it's like to, you know, have the family dynamic that you have when you are dealing with being in your mom's shadow, um, how people try to take advantage of you, what that does to people who are on the road to recovery to begin with. Um, And so what's interesting, though, is when you know as much by this point as you know about Carrie Fisher, it's really neat to see just how much of Carrie Fisher Meryl Streep got out of uh, the character of Suzanne Vale. Um, It's just a really, really good movie. Um, I was really impressed with... I, I honestly I think the most the, the thing that I was most impressed with was the characters were the characters themselves. I thought that all of the characters were written so that not that they would be necessarily believable, which to a large degree that they were, but that they would be relatable. You can find something even in people like um, Dennis Quaid's character of Jack Faulkner. You can find things that you would say, wow, you know, it's kind of a dick move, but I get it. When he says some things that he says to her in the movie about how, wow, you were better when you were on drugs. I mean, you don't, who the fuck says that to a person that's recovering, right? That's ridiculous. Um, But you can see why and you can and you can relate to it that's the genius that is this movie um you see characters like um uh, richard dreyfus uh who's a phenomenal actor in his own right anyway and um and you see how you can relate to his character and also 
not just relate to his character, but, but relate to what that character means to the story overall. So, um, I don't know. I really liked it. It was a good movie. It's not a perfect movie. There are definitely some issues with it. I would say overall, um, it actually has aged well. Um, you know, I, I think that we, um, and it does so on the strength of the story, but, uh, it, it is a worthwhile movie to check out. I would say for sure, if you haven't yet, but what, I don't know. What do you think, Tim? And where, where, what did you think about it? You know, I was actually hoping to have a lot to say about this movie, but I really don't. It's a very good movie. I watched it for the first time just a few days ago, and I, I was caught up in the movie. It's about an hour and 41, 47 minutes, and it went by so quick. It's because the characters are so good. The movie is rich and full of, of life, and it's very entertaining. And... I think I was a little bit bothered by the fact that the movie doesn't have a lot of meat to it, a lot of emotional meat. You're following this woman who's going through uh, her addiction recovery, and you see the opening moments where she gets hit with the fact that she has to change or she's going to completely lose control of her life, which is pretty eye-opening. But again, it's done in a, in a very, I don't want to say lighthearted, but in a in a, in a very comedic real life way that I just really wanted to see something just really hit home for her and really get under her nails because she does bounce back. She does want to get back into doing drugs, but it just felt like one of those character things that she does like, okay, well I'm going through a rougher patch than I was yesterday. I think I'm going to do drugs, but you know what? I'm not going to do it. I'm going to control myself and move on. I, I guess I, how the movie was played out and how Meryl Streep played it, and I guess it was more so Mike Nichols's direction than it was Meryl Streep, that I just didn't get the sense that she had to try too hard to overcome her addiction. And I'm not talking about Carrie Fisher, obviously. I'm talking about the characters portrayed in this film. But... Other than that, I have nothing else to bad to say about it. If we were going to uh, cover this on Did It Age Well, I would have said it sure did. Other than, uh, I, I guess, maybe the look of it, the costume changed, The obviously it's a different decade and the music is different, uh, but the movie and the storytelling holds up now. And it's just fascinating to watch. It definitely makes me want to go back and look more into the relationship between Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher. And as I say that, I remember that there's actually a documentary coming out about the two of them that was produced right before the two of them passed away. I know it's supposed to show you more in depth about how they both pretty much live for each other. You know, if one was going through harsh times, they can always count on the other person. So they had a very special mother-daughter relationship. And this movie does give you a taste of that. It does capture it. And it also captures the shadow that Meryl Streep's character, that Carrie Fisher lived in. So it's just absolutely fascinating. I also really liked how they showed you, even though it was just for a little bit of the movie, how her mother was constantly trying to one-up her. It wasn't being done in a, in a malicious way. It was just in her character to do such a thing. Because growing up, um, her mother, that is, I guess, Debbie Reynolds, you know, growing up, you really had to work for that job. And if it meant to be sexier than the next person, you had to be sexier than the next person. And then obviously when Carrie Fisher was born, it's a different generation and how they look back on that stuff. It, you know, it, it, times had changed. And 
what worked for her mother didn't really work for her. And you definitely get a taste of it in this movie. I just wanted it to be grounded more in reality for the viewer. If I had to give this movie a rating, I honestly would give it a 4.25. It's that entertaining. So I'm glad we covered it. It definitely opened my eyes a little bit more to what, even if it wasn't exactly what Carrie Fisher went through, it just gave me an idea of what she did have to go through, not only with the addiction, but also with her mother. Right on. Okay. Well, that was, and I'm glad we did it too. I think it was, um, I mean, aside from it being a good movie, knowing what we know um, about Carrie Fisher, about Debbie Reynolds, about what went go- went into the book, went into the movie and stuff, that it is, it's really, it really is fascinating. And thus brings us to the end of yet another Discussions with Matt and Tim. Join us next time when the bonus segment will be a three-squared where Matt and Tim discuss their subjective picks for the worst Universal movies. This is in their ongoing series of Worst Studio Movies, where previously they discussed Paramount movies. So again, next week's Three Squared, Worst Universal Movies. Thank you again for listening to Discussions with Matt and Tim. Okay. Well, thank you. That was a very thorough job, weird announcer dude. Appreciate you coming on strong for 2017. And so, without further ado, I believe it is time for the movies, is it not, sir? Yes, sir. You are correct. All right, folks, then here we go. It's the movies. All right, and we've got three movies here for you this week. We've got Manchester by the Sea, we've got Fences, and we've got A Monster Calls. Where do you want to start, sir? How about Fences? Fences. Okay, 2016 American drama film directed by Denzel Washington, written by August Wilson. It's based on his Pulitzer Prize winning play of the same name. Um, now, it should be noted that Wilson did die in 2005, but the screenplay was completed before his death. Um, let's see here. It stars uh, Denzel Washington and Viola Davis. And um, also features Stephen Henderson, Joven Adepo, Russell Hornsby, Michael to Oh, my goodness. My my Kelty Williamson and Sanaya Sidney. Sorry about butchering those names there. Goodness gracious. All right, so this is set in 1950s Pittsburgh. We've got Troy Maxson and his wife Rose. They have their son Corey. And uh, Troy is a uh, former uh, hooligan, as it were, uh, reformed uh, throughout the prison system uh, and actually a baseball player as well he was a baseball player of note but never made it out of the negro leagues and he has taken it uh to be his transition was never successful due to the fact that he uh was discriminated against due to his race and yet there are questions raised as to whether or not it was his age because of having to spend so much time in prison 
Um, this, of course, affects every aspect of his life. He's a he's a trash man now. He's got a son from a previous marriage that's a musician um, who doesn't seem to be taking um, the responsibilities of life seriously, according to Troy. He's also got his son with Rose, who is an aspiring uh, football player. Um, and it's about the dynamics that Troy creates in his life as a result of his life with the people in his family. Um, this movie is a very, very, very powerful character driven movie. And that is both its greatest strength and its ultimate weakness. The, the reason why I say that is because you have such power coming out of the likes of Denzel Washington, out of Viola Davis. Um, also, Jovan Adepo does a fantastic job as Corey. Um, Russell Hornsby is great as Lions as well. Um, you have, uh, but the, but the bulk is really on Denzel Washington. It should be noted that Denzel Washington has done this play uh, on Broadway. So, I mean, he is very familiar with the production. He's familiar with the story. He's lived the character, so to speak. And so uh, he brings that intensity to this performance. So it's not the characters that are the problem. The problem is, is that when you box in um, the, the framing of such a strong character-driven story in such a small way. I mean, it's not, it's not a one-room drama. Don't get me wrong. They, they do things. They show him on his route. They, they show, you know, the son coming back from as a Marine. They, they go different places. It's not a one-room drama. Don't make, don't misunderstand. But it's basically just used, all of the locations are simply used as just a backdrop for the scenes to occur in which the characters do their, amazingly damn fine jobs of acting. Um, I think this is um, excellent Oscar fodder for the best supporting actor, best actor, best supporting actress categories, those kinds of things. Um, I don't see a best picture coming out of this, quite frankly. It could happen. But it is a solid, solid movie. If you are unfamiliar with the content, um, this isn't about race as much as you might think it is. It is about the dynamics of a family in this time period, which are important to discuss um, and are important to note. But it's about how powerful one man can be within his own life, within his own family. And what that does to the other people in his family around him, especially when they have power of their own. Four stars. Um, and a solid four stars out of five. Um, what do you got there, Tim? As what Matt mentioned, it's a movie based on a play by August Wilson. But this movie is based on a play that feels like you're watching a play. Just constantly, it feels like you're watching a play. The movie isn't movie enough to make you forget that you're watching people acting on screen. And what makes it like that is the dialogue. 
they're constantly talking. They're constantly explaining things. They're constantly they're constantly uh, comparing one thing to another thing, and it's mainly Denzel Washington's character is doing this. His character of Troy, constantly comparing uh, his son to himself, constantly comparing things to other things. And the movie is also littered, like what how dramatic plays such as this one, littered with constant themes. This one is littered with themes of loneliness, masculinity and men, sex, duty, hopes, and of course, race. These themes can be found in virtually, I mean, it seems like every conversation that is had, and a lot of these conversations, because it's based on a play, are conversations a lot of us wouldn't necessarily have. When you see it on the stage, it doesn't make any difference. In fact, it helps the story out. Because you're sitting in a stage, and they're having to create this world. And one way to create this world is through the dialogue, giving you rich context and subtext through the dialogue and so it helps you envision things when you're watching it in a film those things are provided for you but again with this movie it's like a direct copy and paste but in a better set and i kind of think that the subtext not the subtext but all a lot of these in your face themes didn't have to be there because again, it just felt like I like I knew I was watching a movie the entire time. You do have powerhouse performances, like Matt said. Everybody did an excellent job. Probably one of my favorite Denzel Washington performances. Uh, I hated his character. You're supposed to hate his character. This is definitely one of those dramatic characters where you really... Sh- I don't think you should see a piece of you in him. I've read the play before, and my... In envisioning how this character should have been portrayed, I would have thought it would have been portrayed in such a way to where some men can see a part of them in him. But how Denzel Washington played it in this outing was just as a despicable human being. Well, not, I don't want to say despicable because his idea of wanting to do well for his family is a noble thing. But then he realized how he treats his family. And that nobility becomes overshadowed with disappointment. I'm not saying that it was Denzel Washington's fault. It's just, I guess, in a way, that was his interpretation and how the character is written. But he gives an excellent performance. But I think one of the the award top award contenders for this movie is for Viola Davis. Her portrayal of Rose was wonderful. Just all the shit she has to deal with from mid the midpoint of the movie on, she handles it wonderfully. I'm sure a lot of you haven't seen the movie, so I don't want to go into any more detail. But if nothing else piques your interest, please go see it for Viola Davis. Absolutely outstanding work. I give this one, however, 3.75 out of 5. It's still a very good movie. I just couldn't help getting over the fact that it felt like I was watching people act, but still very good and worth checking out. So uh, where would you like to go from here, sir? How about probably one of the most overrated Oscar contenders this year, Manchester by the Sea. Okay. In my opinion, of course. Interesting. My highest rated film. (laughs) Oh, is it really? It really is. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Ah, uh, okay. Um, 
Manchester by the Sea, 2016 American drama film written and directed by Kenneth Lonergan, stars Casey Affleck, Michelle Williams, Kyle Chandler, Gretchen Mole, and Lucas Hedges. Uh, basically, the story is an uncle has to look after his nephew um, after uh, after said uncle's brother dies. Um, and so we have Lee, played by Casey Affleck, who um, is... Uh, kind of struggling where he is in life. He's he's got he's got his own issues, but he gets called back home um, due to the death of his brother, and finds that he's got to kind of put things in order, and also finds out he's inadvertently saddled with his nephew now, and what to do. The problem is, is that with the way his life is set up, he would have to come back home permanently. And he has some heavy duty scars, scars. Um, he inadvertently lost his children. Um, and that's why he, he moved away. You know, after he lost his children, he loses his wife, you know, um, divorce. Sorry. I don't want to make it sound differently. Um, and so he's got a lot of baggage. And so, there are things he has to deal with and move on to make his own life better. Uh, but at the same time, you can't just walk away from a responsibility without doing the right thing. And that's the heart of the movie is, is you're watching Lee as he evolves, um, from having to come back home to what it means for him to actually be able to leave again. Um, I found that this movie was, Really, really, really good on the whole, but none of the, but none of the parts were really outstanding individually. And it's not, and it's funny because it's not an ensemble cast kind of movie. It's not that kind of a thing. Um, it's just a simple character story. It's a, it's just a drama. Um, but. It's literally the sum, you know, the the sum of its parts is what makes it great. All of the parts individually, nothing big, no, no big deal. That's as best as I can put it. It's really good. It's worth watching. But the thing is, is that all of the things that make everything, that make all of the characters just kind of blah. Uh, for example, like Michelle Williams, who plays his ex-wife. Um, uh like you you get where they're coming from but at the same time it's just kind of like meh okay you know it's almost like it's a little too real life and i think that's one of the things that people are praising about it. it's like oh they're so gripping it's so real and but you know what you you have to ride that line of realism versus escape there are certain things that you can do to portray something realistically because that's the style and the tone but at the same time if you're just watching the drama of another relationship without real emotional backing it's just kind of like watching your neighbors fight sometimes it's interesting sometimes it's awkward on the whole you'd rather just kind of be left out of it um and and again, that's what happens with these individual characters. You don't necessarily find yourself engrossed in the characterizations, but the fact, but the way that they interact and the story that it tells is compelling. Um, so that's where I land on it. 
It is really, really good. I thought overall the cinematography was much better uh, as compared to Fences. Um, I feel that you are watching a movie. And um, uh, and I think that's what makes it the better film there. But other than that, you know, hey, I'm glad Casey Affleck is getting all this attention. Um, I think he's a good actor. Uh, but I don't know if it's this mind-blowing performance. Um, I guess you'll have to decide that for yourself. At the end of the day, Manchester by the Sea gets 4.25 out of 5. What do you got there, Tim? His performance kind of reminds me of Leonardo DiCaprio's from uh, last year for The Revenant, where it's getting all this praise, saying it's a wonderful, great performance, but it's like, you know, any actor could have done that. Kind of? Maybe? No? I, I disagree, but I understand where you're coming from. Manchester by this, I mean, he did a great job, Casey Affleck did, and Leo did also last year, but there was just nothing super compelling about the performance. Nothing really stood out. The movie itself, though, Manchester by the Sea, is prayed for how unforced the film is, how unforced the storytelling is, how unforced characters are, which makes the movie feel real and compelling. Like what Matt said, as a whole, it's a compelling film. Individual characters are unforced, but not necessarily compelling. And that's what made this movie incredibly watchable. I know I did say that it was probably the most overrated. I felt it was one of the more overrated films. It doesn't mean that I didn't like the movie. In fact, I like this movie of, of more so than Fences. It bugs me when people say that I, I guess it's just like the reasoning of why so many people love this movie kind of interests me a little bit. But Casey Affleck did do a good job. Uh, Michelle Williams, I thought, did a great job. Her mental breakdown scene, I don't, not mental breakdown, but the scene between, uh, there's a real incredibly touching scene between her and Casey Affleck's character. I'm not going to go into detail because I would have to go into why Casey Affleck's character is the way he is. It's just absolutely powerful and gripping. It's very minimalistic, and it works wonderfully. I mean, I cannot stress how 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 wonderful it is to watch a film like this. It's two hours and 15 minutes long. I easily could have sat in that theater for another 30 minutes and watched more of this movie. It's very minimalistic, and it works. But again, it's not full of individual compelling characters. It's still a 4.25 out of 5 movie for me as well. All right, all right. Well, then that brings us to the last movie, A Monster Calls, 2016 fantasy drama film directed by J.A. Bayona. Uh, stars Sigourney Weaver, Felicity Jones, Toby Cabell, Louis McDougal, and Liam Neeson. We are following the exploits of little Connor O'Malley, a young boy who's basically trying to deal with his mom's terminal cancer um, and his strict grandma. His, uh, he's got an estranged father. And then, of course, the local school bully. Um, and every... Uh, and so basically, one night, um, Connor encounters the monster, uh, which is like this kind of tree thing. And, of course, it's voiced by Liam Neeson. And he tells a series of stories. And then, of course, um, the monster wants to hear Connor's story as well. And it is through this storytelling that um, both 
the monster who calls and Connor himself um, kind of uh, learn what life is about, more or less. Uh, I felt that this movie is, uh, it's really cool to look at. The special effects are awesome, but honestly, I just felt this whole goddamn movie tried way too fucking hard. Um, and it, it just felt like it was purposely going out of its way to be tearjerker-ish, to be childlike, to be, um, uplifting, to be rejuvenating. It's every, every move it makes is clearly calculated. Um, it is not organic. Um, but, on on many of the formulas that they use, they still work. You'll find yourself chuckling at certain things. You'll find yourself, I think, moderately moved at some stuff. Um, and again, it's great to look at. Um, it, it's not a bad film for the family either. I think it can teach some very uh, good life lessons in a way. But just the whole movie feels forced. And at a movie that's barely over 140 minutes, uh, I'm sorry, an hour and 40 minutes long, that's a lot of forced that you have to deal with. So, um, great visuals, um, likable enough, just for me, not that great. 3.25 out of 5. Um, you know, if you got kids, sure, why not? If you don't have kids... Maybe wait for the red box. What do you got there, Tim? Bring us home. So when I first saw the trailer for this movie, I was expecting a very depressing downer time at the movie theater. And uh, needless to say, I was rather surprised that the really downer depressing stuff hit home in the last three minutes of the movie. As well as with all the other people at the movie theater, there's a lot of sniffles, a lot of cries, a lot of weeps, and a lot of whelps, even. Actually, one guy did whelp, because I think it hit a little, hit home a little too much for him. I, I think it's a beautiful film. I'm glad the studio went out on a limb, focused features, and produced a movie like this. It's not doing well at all at the box office. I think it only brought in a couple million dollars over the weekend domestically, so I hope it gets a little more traction over the next couple weeks. It's beautifully made. It's very, it's visually stylized. It's a story and theme-driven film. I honestly don't feel like this movie was forced. If the movie was going to be a tearjerker from beginning to end, yeah, okay, I can understand. I can see how it's forced, but just in my opinion, I thought it worked... I thought it was a good call holding those feels moments for the end because I had no idea where this movie was building up to. Those final moments with the monster and the boy and his mother and grandmother even were just absolutely compelling to watch and genuinely, genuinely uplifting and sad and bittersweet all at once because you're growing with this character you're growing with this young boy you're learning things along with them pertaining to grief and growing up and it's just something that's incredibly charming maybe i'm 
jaded by it because I'm currently going through uh, cancer with a family member. Uh, I lost my grandfather to cancer a few years ago. And my uh, grandmother, or not my grandmother, and I have an aunt who is currently uh, dealing with cancer. So that's three family members right there. Two of them are going through cancer right now. And does this affect me in a certain way? More so than others, maybe. But it's still a very good movie. And I, I do hope you guys can go and check it out at a movie theater because it's well-deserved, I think, to see it in that atmosphere. The movie builds to something rather special that I think it's it's worth checking out. I give A Monster Calls 4 out of 5. It's, it's not a perfect score. And some of the things that Matt is saying I do agree with. It's kind of reaching for things that I really don't think it. the movie itself knows what it's trying to reach for until, again, it finds its proper footing at the end and it it hits home. So four out of five probably deserves more, deserves less. I It's just one of those movies, but do check it out. All right. Well, then I guess that brings us to the end of the movies. Next week's movies are going to be Hidden Figures and Silence. So... Without further ado, I think we are now ready for the spiel, are we not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can follow me, this is Matt on Twitter. Uh, this, follow me. This is Matt on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can also climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio, as well as look us up on the old SoundCloud. So, until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Shirley MacLaine, I get to say this. Don't be afraid to go out on a limb. It's where all the fruit is. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>